we would like to issue a strong content and trigger warning for today's episode. Toward the end, Victoria discusses suicidal ideation. Please listen with care. Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Please listen with care. Lisa and I created this podcast with the goal of enlightening each other and our listeners in prevailing over narcissistic and toxic people and relationships. Our mission with this podcast is to help survivors of toxic relationships recognize red flags and areas of personal growth while equipping them with strategies for ultimate and lasting mental health across all relationships. This is a podcast of self-discovery. We'll be talking about personal freedom, safety, security, and strength while embracing our inner voice, recognizing and honoring our gut instinct, accepting imperfection, showing grace to ourselves, and starting anew. Many of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. Our podcast is for educational and self-improvement purposes only and should not be viewed as a replacement for therapy. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities and see our show notes for helpful suggestions. Some names and identities have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent Lisa's or my views. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See our show notes for the links. If you have a red flag story you'd like to share for an upcoming episode, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at heresyourredflag at gmail.com or private message us through Here's Your Red Flag Facebook or Instagram pages. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Here's Your Red Flag. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tony. So for today's episode, we will continue our conversation with Victoria. Last time, Victoria talked about her experience dating a serial scam artist and swindler. She feels it is so important to get the word out there about this man and others like him who prey on others' financial and emotional vulnerabilities. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, we invite you to do so. It's riveting. Today, as promised, we want to delve deeper with Victoria about her childhood hardwiring that contributed to her attraction to narcissistic and exploitative men, as well as what contributed to those types of toxic men being attracted to her. We will also examine what she's learned from the relationship with Eugene and what she has done to move on. So starting with childhood hardwiring, Victoria, what was your childhood like? What was the family dynamic? I consider myself very fortunate. I do think that I had a pretty good childhood. You know, I do think it was healthy. It's not like what I hear about now with, you know, when now that I'm older and I I see certain family dynamics, I can say that I, I am really fortunate to grow up in the kind of household I was in. But I will say it wasn't until I went into therapy that we we took a deeper look into certain things. 
So growing up, I actually never witnessed my parents ever fighting, not one time, not once. And I didn't realize later on that this could actually be a bit harmful because I did see the world as or relationships as almost perfect. My mom was the backbone of the family and, and she gave us very good memories, you know, and then um, it wasn't until I went and got help that not that there was anything wrong, but there were certain things where I think she protected us too much that I wasn't able to protect myself as I became an adult. What do you think would be the benefit of seeing your parents deal with conflict in their marriage for a young child? Um, I think it's the reality of it, you know, that there is conflict. And, um, you know, and obviously it falls on a spectrum. I think what would have been beneficial to see was conflict and how it was handled. Yes. But I, I, I didn't see any of that. I never saw them fight. They, they were doing it behind closed doors. And again, a lot of it can be cultural because I did have this talk with my mom. And, you know, she said her growing up, she had learned that that's something that kids should never see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What were your parents' messages to you, positive and negative, about yourself that you internalized as a child? I think a lot of it can be a bit cultural coming from an Asian household. But when there were certain things just kind of growing up and I I'd tell my mom about it, she'd kind of brush it off and just be like, oh, just ignore it. Just be nice. Just almost act like it never happened. So it was very dismissive. And being so young, I, I listened and that's how I've handled it. I, I never learned how to really stand my ground. I think that really feeds right into the not witnessing conflict and the resolution of conflict is, right. you know, how you deal with it is by kind of turning the other cheek or ignoring it. Right, and, exactly. And yeah. it doesn't get better. <laughs> right. And then I learned the hard way. And as an adult now, I think I'm starting to learn that these types of things are lifelong. It's not just when I was five. It's not just when I'm 10. It's not just the phase in high school, it's it's lifelong, whether it's in partnership, in, you know, uh, bullying in the workplace or toxic friendships. It's it's something that's lifelong. And I, I wish it was something that I learned when I was younger. I can really relate to that. And it kind of boils down to communication skills and being able to communicate our own needs, values and desires with someone. Of course, we have to know what those values are. But being able to say, no, I don't really want that kind of food right. or no, right. I don't want to spend the night, you know, right. having the freedom to express your own opinions is really important. When that's silence, then we're very vulnerable. Right. And feeling like you have permission to express that. If all of this is kind of swept under the rug, you may not not only not know what your needs and desires are. But again, if you do, you keep them swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. And then we give away our power. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, Absolutely. That's right. Mm -hmm. So as a younger child, what were your dreams for yourself for your future? Oh, when I was a kid, when I was young, I, I dreamed to be a dancer, but that definitely is, you know, I have no business doing that. Um, but it was just a, a bit of an idea. But even though, you know, it was something that I did, did voice, it was kind of, 
I mean, I don't want to say my mom swept it under the rug, but she was just, she, she dismissed it where it's like, oh, that doesn't pay enough. You know, <laughs> Like, what are you going to be? You know, it, it was, it, I, I guess I could say it was dismissive. <laughs> um, and then just far, as far as dreams, it was, you know, I didn't have any grand dreams. There was so much of my childhood where, where my, my parents had instilled, like, you have to go to college, you have to go to school, everything is about school. And that's totally fine. Like, I'm very thankful for it now. But it was it was pushed where it made me feel like that was the only option. Right. Mm -hmm. Whatever your dreams were pushed aside, in the sense that college was the most important valued thing to your parents. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it is, again, cultural, because, you know, my parents never went to college. So in a way, it was kind of living a dream for them. You know, they grew up in a third world country and, you know, my mom had to give up school to take care of her many little brothers and sisters. So it was a sacrifice she made. So she very much was all about us going to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I think across cultures, I know I heard that message from my parents. There was just no other option but going to college. Right. Mm-hmm. It didn't, didn't matter what I had dreamt of being a Disney princess or whatever, you know, my, right. <laughs> my little childhood dreams were. Yeah, I was going to college first. Right. Sticking with the childhood hardwiring, what was your view about your future spouse? What were your must haves? What type of man were you attracted or drawn to? Just kind of pre dating, early teens going into the dating arena? When I was younger, it was very naive what I wanted. It was something that was never talked about with me, you know, as far as boys and coming from, I want to say a family that's very um, strict. My mom didn't allow me to have a boyfriend until I was 18. Mm -hmm. So on my part, there was a lot of me doing things, you know, uh, that she didn't know. A lot of things that I was just hiding from her. But I think being that young, I, my dream spouse was what I saw on TV you know, the sweet guy romancing you and come to find, I don't think they exist. (laughs) And it was very, it was, you know, just the young mind of, you know, like I'd like to have this Prince Charming or these men that we see on TV that are just so, so sweet. Mm -hmm. So idealized. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they have conflict, it's resolved in 30 minutes. Right, right. It's a 30 minute episode. And then there's those shows and those movies always have a happy ending. It's just, it's really not realistic. Mm. And I, and I had to learn that the hard way, like the very, very hard way. Even with my parents, like I said, they, I never saw them fight. So it was almost, I almost felt like that was normal. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can see how that would really create almost a fear of conflict because you don't know. Right. Number one. Because I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. And when when my friends would talk about things that happened in their own homes, it's I, I could never relate to it. Like I, I didn't understand, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, certain things like the neglect or the addictions their families had. I, I I didn't feel it. Like I couldn't understand. Yeah, I imagine how that too then just starts this little shell of shame. You know that when you have your first fight with your boyfriend, which is normal. And it's a little wobbly in resolving that conflict because you don't have any experience with it. And right. then you resolve it. Well, who do you talk to about that? Because it's never been a topic of discussion. I so, never talked about it with anyone. I didn't say yeah. anything for 12 years. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I was almost protecting him in this 
image of what I thought was supposed to be normal because it made me feel like what's going on is not normal and I have to hide it from everybody. Would you find you would want to hide it from everybody and then I can fix this and I can figure it out? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's what it was. You mm-hmm. know, I a lot of it was trying to protect him and not tell anyone how much we were fighting or things he would say, even though I knew the things were bad. And, and I think it was a lot of the the shame and just feeling embarrassed. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very relatable. Very relatable. Yeah. You feel like you, you know, you've gone so far in the relationship. Do you back out now? And what would people say? And it would be a big thing because you haven't told anyone, you know. Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) And then when I do tell everyone, everyone's like, what, where did this come from? Right. (laughs) No one had any idea. I mean, a lot of it on my end was yeah, because I didn't say anything to anyone. No, nothing during that time with my ex-husband, even though I always had this gut feeling where the first month of dating him, it, a feeling to just always walk away. But I always held on to hope and I always made the choice to stay. And, you know, you know, that roller coaster ride where you're fine. And then when things aren't fine, it feels like the world's over. And then you resolve, well, not even resolve it, but then, you know, things might be okay. And those feelings just go away. It was, and, you know, going through therapy and talking about that, there was also almost like an addiction to it. Yeah. You're addicted to that good feeling and you do anything that you can to get that back. We referred to that in another episode as chasing the dragon, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a common phrase among addicts is you just can't ever quite get back to that first initial high, so to speak. Right. And or you get set to such a low. And then when you do get, do get that high, it's, uh, I don't know, it's like the rush of the dopamine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Those little breadcrumbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I could mm-hmm. I could go for, you know, a month on a couple of little morsels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did want to insert kind of the reason why we like to know about people's upbringing is because we just know from so many people that and research that we're just hardwired. You know, it's nature and nurture that makes us who we are. And so many aspects of our past do prime us to be perfect targets for toxic people. Once we kind of heal and can hopefully get therapy, then we figure out what needs to be healed within us. But definitely learning how we're hardwired, I think it can be hard to face that past, but also very freeing too, to Mm -hmm. understand that. Yeah. So I think we'll move on to talking about the stages of relationships and specifically maybe with your relationship to Eugene, can you speak to the beginning of the relationship? Was there, for example, love bombing or grooming or anything that you could share? Yeah. I mean, looking back at it now, like I had mentioned in in our first interview, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it as love bombing when, you know, in the beginning, but I did think it did surprise me that okay, he's going to fly all the way from Vegas on our first day. Like, why would he do that? You know, maybe he is just like a really nice guy and he has the time to do it. And I took it as that. And the same thing that I mentioned on the call the first time, the the consistency where I was like, oh, I've never experienced this before. This guy's consistent every single day, like on the beat. I didn't think that was love bombing. I took it as this is probably how he is. I think it's really difficult for people to be even consistent with themselves. So when I started to see that 
with him, I thought it was just his character. Mm. It wasn't like over exaggerated with gifts and, you know, none of that was like going on because that would have raised a bit of a red flag. But his was very slow. It started out with the consistency and then the effort. And then he started to back his words up. And yeah, things started to change after the money was given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we can call it love bombing with him coming out to see me and the consistency. I mean, it's I do think it's part of his scheme. And it's not like he was saying, oh, like, I love you the first few months. Like, none of, none of that was going on. What makes him very scary, I don't want to say, use the word scary, but what makes him more trusting is he's actually very respectful of boundaries. He doesn't try to push anything. So I don't, I don't know if we'd define it as love bombing. Because mm-hmm. I have experienced that with some men. And this is, you know, so, so I think in a sense, it, it kind of confuses me a bit. Do you think that because he lived in another state and he lived far away from you, he was better able to have this be more slow growing i mean i know that's not necessarily the case with other scammers or swindlers but it's like he was able to paint the perfect picture for you maybe oh because i couldn't see yeah i think that but i mean you know because i've been in the dating game like a really long time and i feel like with other men it always just fizzles even other men that I've talked to, like in other states, they'll stay consistent maybe for like a week and then it just dries up. But with Eugene, it didn't. He just like kept going. I think he was able to paint a picture because I also wasn't able to see that he was, you know, not who he said he was. He wasn't a day trader, you know, meeting with his trading group in the morning. He was, a, I mean, he probably still works at a restaurant because that's his history. He never co-owned a restaurant. And I think we talked about that on the first call where he told me he co-owned one. And I find out from one of the girls that he was a buster there. So how, yeah, how could I see that if I didn't even live in the same city? He he could tell me anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So would you say at the beginning, uh, what hooked you, what you found attractive was his consistency and his willingness to come see you and to make an effort and things like that? Yeah, like I, I feel like it was everything that I honestly asked for. I wanted someone who was very similar to me, who was consistent, who, you know, acted on their words. And that was what almost attracted me to him was because I felt like, oh, he's kind of like me, which is pleasant because he shows up. But I don't know if he caught something in our conversation where he was like, uh, you know, because he did ask me, he was like, oh, what kind of guy do you like? And I I possibly may have mentioned all those things. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't remember exactly, but I, I, he might have asked me, what do you look for in a partner or a guy? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he acted on it really well. So what were some red flags that started cropping up for you? Or was it more after he asked for the money or after the, no, there were some red flags in the beginning. I mean, I did already have like a weird gut feeling when I saw the poker chips mm-hmm. on as one of his pictures on his dating app. But then I thought I may have just gotten triggered because my ex-husband had a really bad gambling addiction. And then I kind of had to pause for a second and remember, this is somebody else. I can't judge him based on my ex-husband. Not every poker player is bad or addicted or, you know, so I wanted to give him that chance. I mean, it'd be the same as if a guy said like, oh, she's a divorce and single mom. And so she's like this, you know, so I, I wanted to be fair to him. That's what I did. 
you know, so I, I don't know if I'd consider him just being a playing poker to be a red flag. I did catch him in a lie. And another thing that he did was, you know, and I called him out on it. It wasn't something that I ignored. And when I called him out on it, he wanted to talk about it. He was like, let's talk about this until, you know, you're comfortable with my response. You don't even need to come see me. Like, I'm fine with even a phone conversation. I just want you to hear me out. And that part I was also attracted to because most men don't like confrontation. They don't like to talk. And he was willing to answer all of my questions. And he was like, I lied to you out of fear. You know, you and I hadn't even met yet. It was my first time meeting you. I didn't want you to judge me. And it seemed sincere. And I forgave him for that. And then something else happened where it was something else where he told me he's never been married. And when I asked him about it, after I found some things, that's when he talked about the girl that he married was all a setup that her parents from Japan are very wealthy and she wanted to be a dancer in America. So they paid him money to marry her so that she gets papers. And it's not like, okay, I'll take your word for it. I did my research and it seemed like, okay, they don't follow each other on social media. You know, it seems like she is with the guy that he says that she's with because he seems to comment sweet things on her page. And, you know, she doesn't post pictures of him on her social media. So it seems like it was what it was. But then, you know, when I really started digging and I really confirmed certain things, everything was a story from the start. It was all a lie from the start. And that's why I see it as more of a scheme, a scam, a scandal that I'm pretty sure he tells everyone. I mean, one of the girls I found, it was the same story. Yeah, I think that's a definite red flag when people have, you know, ready-made excuses or reasons for some mm -hmm. big conflict. But then again, you know, to be fair to ourselves, how do you know? I mean, how do you? Yeah, I mean, that's just still such a mystery to me, too. Yeah, you know, I, go ahead. Well, I think some parents paying someone to marry their daughter for papers might seem like an outlandish story, but to other people, it might make total sense, you know, kind of depending on your background and your experiences and things. Because so. I do, I have met people that have done that where mm -hmm. they want to stay in this country and it's obviously not a real marriage. And, and I asked him, I was like, if it's not real, why do you guys have two kids? Mm -hmm. You know? And he's just like, well, we had to live together to prove that we're legitimately married. And he's like, so, and then we accidentally started sleeping together and she got pregnant by accident mm -hmm. or they started sleeping together and she got pregnant by accident. And then he's like, but I don't even know if the second kid is mine um, because she had an affair because that's who he, she was really in love with. I think I told you guys when I found out about what happened to my money, I went to go find the guy you know, that he said that she had an affair with. And the guy was like, no, I never had an affair with her. I'm 100% gay. And so that everything was a lie from the start. I just think all of it is very complex and strange with her involvement and their kids involved because she didn't know any of this was happening. She's just as innocent. But the fact that my attorney wrote them both a letter that's addressed to both of them and she ignores it, that's very strange to me. And I actually just tried to get them served last week with my accountant's letter. And the process server said that the apartment is vacated. So it just only makes me think that she's in on it because it's just, I, I mean, it's just insane to me. If, if you obviously know that this is happening, why are you running away? Why are you ignoring this? And, you know, I try to think maybe she might be scared of him. I don't know. 
you know, I, I don't know that kind of position. I've never been in that type of situation where if there is domestic abuse involved and the fear in that, I, I don't, I can't relate to that. I can relate to the emotional abuse in a relationship because of my ex-husband. But when I do talk to women that have been in physically abusive relationships, it's not that easy to leave. So I, I'd like to give her some grace and the benefit of the doubt that she's not helping him in doing this to other women. But then again, there are women that do. <laughs> I just don't know enough. <laughs> yeah. And if, if she is in the country due to marriage to him, if that has any truth whatsoever to it, then he could really hold that over her as power over her to help him because he could always say, well, if you don't do this, then I'll divorce yeah. you and you'll have well, to, I don't know. Well, they are, I mean, their marriage is, is not fake. When I found the guy that he said she had an affair with, he said, he's like, those two have been together for 12 years. He's like, as far as the papers, I don't know, but those two are together. He knows both of them. He's like, you know, Eugene's come to my Christmas parties before. He's like, as far as the papers, I don't know. But when I found one of the other girls and I told her the story, she was like, well, that's a lie because he told me the same thing five years ago that he only married her for papers and he's not sure if the first kid is his. Now with me, he told me he's not sure if the second kid is his, you know, and then there's another kid involved where he has a teenage daughter that I don't think anybody knows about. So it's a lot of different stories. It's a lot of, you know, skeletons that I came to find when I'm verifying information. And so I just kind of feel like, you know, if it was just me, I could have just let it be, not let it be, but I still would have done something about it, but I wouldn't have made it so public like the way that I am. But I do think there's so much financial harm being done that people deserve to know that he's doing this to people. This is what he does. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not just an isolated incident. Right. I'm really curious about what was your self-talk during your relationship with Eugene? You know, he was consistent. He made an effort. And then he asked for the money or, you know, made promises about mm -hmm. you giving him money. Mm -hmm. So then what was your self-talk? What do you think, looking back, you had to give up in order to maintain their relationship? I had to give up. I honestly, when I look back at it, a fear of getting hurt. I haven't been in a serious relationship in a really long time because I, I was very happy being single and I was very happy alone. And, you know, and I, and if someone did come along, I did want to give it a shot. And I thought when I do give it a shot with someone, I'm going to do it the right way where I, I'm going to trust them. I'm not going to be scared to love again. So I, I, I felt like I wasn't giving up anything wrong. I, I felt like I was giving up a fear of loving again. Does that answer your question? So you were really wanting to kind of take a chance, take a risk? Take a risk. Yeah. I wanted to take a risk. So I felt like, yeah, I was, I was giving up just that fear of that. Cause I know you know, when I talk to a lot of people, they, they get scared of it. And I, I didn't want to be that person. And I felt like, oh, I, I meet somebody who I've asked for, like the, these characteristics, this is something that I've wanted. And, you know, other than losing the money, I thought it'd be worth the risk. But I guess you never really know when you step into these kind of things, even if mm -hmm. money wasn't involved. That's really interesting. Because look at all you did to prove to yourself that you yeah. can take a risk, right? I mean, just right. that just occurred to me right now that 
yeah, you gave money to pretty much a stranger. That's kind of risky. And he was, he was going to risk, you're taking a gamble on doubling your money or what have you. And of course he gave you all the assurances, but. Right. Right. And I, I, you know, I mean, he would have been a stranger if I would have never met him and, you know, and he shared things that made me want to trust him. Like he was a father. He had these kids that he, the way he talked about his wife or the baby mama was when I think about it now, it's actually really sad where he's like, you know, she's selfish. She just, you know, she wants to do her own thing. She just cares about dancing. So it's me taking care of the kids. I'm the one that has to look for a babysitter. I'm the one that has to do all this. And I thought, wow, what a great dad, you know, so it's more trusting too. You know? mm-hmm. Like, like he's a single dad. You don't meet a lot of full-time single dads. And he made it clear that he was a full-time single dad. And, you know, so I, I understand your position. You're always on the go. You know, he always respected my time mm-hmm. as far as like, you know, if I couldn't talk to him because I had to do something with the kids, he understood. He'd talk about his own charity giving and what he wanted to do for the world. Everything about him is very deceiving. The The facade, it's pretty extreme. You know, it's not like he's just talking about like, he's his great dad. He actually has kids, you know, mm-hmm. and he'll send me pictures and show me all these things. And, and it's believable. He's taken his daughter to gymnastics, to karate, and he's sharing all this. And he would even have his daughter say hi to me. Mm-hmm. So what am I supposed to believe that all this is fake? And to think that all of it was a lie, mm-hmm. you know, and even going forward, I don't, I don't want this to affect me where I want to think that every person I meet is scamming me. Like I know there's good people. This was a circumstance that I just ended up in. Mm-hmm. Initially, you did mention though, that you had a gut feeling when you think back about the pictures and it's important to listen to our gut, but also you picked up on, oh, maybe I'm just sort of triggered by this because of my ex-husband's gambling addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So we can talk ourselves right out of things too. But at the same time, you were very wise to notice. That's right. I mean, just because my ex-husband yelled at me about pickles doesn't mean the next person is going to yell at me about pickles, you know? So it's really sticky and it's a lot of unraveling that we have to do. These people just create so much damage in their mm-hmm. when they're absent you know it's just really upsetting <laughs> the yeah. Word. <laughs> yeah 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 you know and I think um that's still something that I'm still learning is that you know that instinct and that voice because it you know when I thought I was right and I it was a long time ago but I had like cut off some guy because I was like oh he's definitely lying like I'm trusting my gut this time a, a year later I found out I was wrong so it's kind of, I'm still trying to understand and discern this voice that, you know, that we're all told and t- told to listen to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not something that happens overnight. I think these experiences kind of help us to listen to it if we can become aware, because not a lot of people are aware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I was going to say, came to mind when you were talking about discernment. This is where it's so important that you have either a good coach or therapist to talk to about these things. You know, this is, these are things that I have dealt with in my past with men and I'm dating a new man and I want to run these things by you and ask, Lisa and I like to joke, is this anything, you know, and 
<laughs> what do you think? Is this, is this something or is this nothing? And if you don't have a coach or therapist, a wise friend that you trust that holds no judgment towards you and can listen and process it with you. And if you don't want to go to a friend or a coach or a therapist, the journaling where you can ask yourself kind of change roles in the journaling and ask yourself, is this anything? And document what your doubts are about this and what is concerning you about this so that you can start looking at it from not just a flat surface, but you can start seeing the angles on it. And a lot of, I know we're, we're going to go into the red flags of these men, which kind of stem off narcissistic people. But one of their key things is isolation. And they don't want you to journal. They don't want you to have a wise friend. They certainly don't want you to have therapy or coaching because then you can start to see their cracks. You can start to see the other angles. You start to see that this is not what they want it to appear to be. Right. And I feel like I experienced a lot of that with my ex-husband, a lot of the isolation, a lot of the control. And um, that's why I thought it was very different with Eugene. There was none of that. He made himself out to be a very confident man. He wasn't like, you know, who are you with? Who are you hanging out with? You know, he was totally fine that I had male friends. He was fine that I was free to do whatever I wanted and me and him would catch up. So I thought he was of healthy mind. And it's interesting because when I did find one of the other girls that was with him from over a decade ago, the character she painted was very opposite very emotionally abusive. He was physically abusive with her. It was everything I experienced with my ex-husband, but she, Eugene, was like 10 times more. It's very textbook classic of what we read about abusers is what she painted of him. You know, my experience was very different. But then again, you know, I think he did ask me what my ideal type of partner was, and he could have been just playing an act to appear confident, to appear that he wasn't bothered. I don't know. It was just a way to groom me and to gain my trust for the money. It wasn't for anything else. So I don't know what the wife experiences. I have no idea because <laughs> I really don't know who he is now. But yeah, when you talk about that, it does take me back to my ex-husband with a lot of the isolation and not telling anybody anything, which I think is so important because you get, you know, a second pair of ears or eyes to kind of give you some feedback. But yeah, I think when you're in that that type of abusive relationship. You do everything you can to protect him and your future and whatever it is you're holding on for, you know, like the hope. And it wasn't until I started talking to people where I was like, oh my God, and I detached. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that I was that person. <laughs> and it's funny because I remember when I was with my ex-husband, I was in college at the time and he wanted to be on speaker when I was getting on the elevator. And there was just some guy in the elevator. He just happened to be there and he just said hello. And I said, hi. And my ex-husband was on speaker and was like, who is that? Who are you talking to? You know, he was getting upset. And then when I ran into that same guy in the elevator again, he actually warned me and he was like, you need to be careful with guys like him. But I didn't right. listen to it. You know, I was, I was in my early twenties. I, you know, I thought I was in love and, um, but looking back at it, those little things we need to listen to. And I, I wish that I had the voice I do now to be able to talk about it because then people could have warned me. Mm -hmm. People could have helped me. I just thought I could, like you said earlier, I thought I could fix it and I thought everything would be fine once we got married. I thought everything would be fine when we had kids, but actually everything got worse. Mm -hmm. That seems to be par for the course. Mm -hmm. you know, 
it's funny how you describe Eugene, that he doesn't fall into some of those same formulas that these narcissistic guys fall into that Lisa and I have talked about, that he was fine with you having relationships. He was fine with you talking about him with other people and, and all of that. He just really strikes me as very patient with you in particular, because right. you mm-hmm. describe these other relationships he's had with other women where there was actual physical violence, emotional mm-hmm. abuse, things like that. He's like this stalking hunter toward you. It's kind of, it's not kind of, it's frightening. It's even more so than these other ones that, you know, you look back and you can see all these red flags and you, Victoria, are not vocalizing a lot of red flags until after the money stuff started. And that is frightening and horrifying and something I think is great to bring to this audience in particular. You may not see so many red flags right up front. And that's- Right, right. That's that's the part that I think makes it very um, predatory. You know, I I do think it's very similar to when kids are targeted. They don't Mm -hmm. show their red flags. They're, you know, they, they want you to trust them. And with Eugene, it's the same type of way. He's not looking for me as a long-term partner. He's looking for, you know, a financial investment. That's the end goal. Right. You know, and like I said, it's not an isolated incident because I found all these other people. The one closest to my story is the most recent girl that I found, which happened to her five years ago. She still has all her messages that she gave me. And it's very similar where he's talking about poker and the investment and sending her videos of all his winnings only to have him run off with the money and the wife. And then I'm like, where's my money? And um, it's the same thing. So that's why I, I do think people do need to be a little bit more careful with him. I've met other people that have been victimized, not by Eugene, but others like him where it's, what do they call it? The long con. (laughs) Mm, It's the long con. Yeah. That's what it is. You know, they build your trust over time because you'll never see it coming. They've shown you who they are for, let's say a year, you know, what's going to give you a reason not to trust them, you know? And then once you guys are in a committed relationship, you're supposed to trust your partner in a secure relationship. You're supposed to, right? Yeah. A little bit more careful with this one. And while he's long conning you to make a new word, he probably had a lot of other people that he's doing that to as well, possibly. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't really mention what this group is, but it is a group for women. Um, And the reason I can't mention it is because there is an agreement. Um, It is very protected by women. And you, you could post pictures of men on there to get feedback from other women that have dated them. And um, a friend had posted for me. A lot of women came forward and they were just like, they, they weren't conned by him, but they did talk about their experience with him. One girl had said that she went on like three dates with him and he never paid for a single one. And she got like a $10 sandwich and he was shocked that she expected him to pay for it. And then, but yeah, he's like, oh, I'm just trying to save my money because I'm trying to be part of the billionaires club, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and it's like uh, his reasoning is a little, it's just a little bit weird, but a lot of women just talked about how he just had no money. And so I'm kind of like, okay, well, it makes a lot of sense why he's trying to swindle women to, I don't know, either support his gambling habit or support his family. But now it's all just starting to make sense. It's all, it's all a scheme. Wow. Yeah. But you know how, like they say with narcissists, they, they look for someone to feed 
they need a supply, you know, and I don't know, maybe the supply is the wife and then all these other girls he meets are, you know, his financial support. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I just want to, I hope she's okay. I don't completely know their situation. I mean, let's say, you know, she is in on it, then I think she's just as much a monster. But if she's a victim in all of it, I, I think anyone that's been in an abusive relationship, if we were fortunate enough to get out, I hope she does because a lot of women choose to stay. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Something that really stands out to me is, Victoria, you mentioned that, you know, your ex-husband, you were very isolated and, you know, didn't talk to anybody about your relationship and things. I just think it's really interesting how we can carry those same patterns of behavior into new relationships if we don't fully heal from them. So you may not have suffered an abusive childhood and neglectful and all of that, although you said your mom was a little bit dismissive about things. But for the most part, you said your childhood was great. But that relationship, your marriage was a hardwiring you know, mm-hmm. that was just a light bulb for me because I know I didn't, I healed a lot from my first marriage or learned a lot from my first marriage, but I definitely still carried a lot of false expectations and beliefs and zero boundaries, zero sense of my own values into that next marriage. And so I think that would be interesting maybe to explore another time. We do have a lot of people that say, my childhood was great. And here I ended up in these awful relationships. And I think it's because we carry those patterns with us if we don't figure out how, A, figure out that they're unhealthy and B, what was it about ourselves that we allowed it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, I do a lot of that soul searching, you know, after my divorce, that's when I got a, a lot of help. I mean, it wasn't just therapy. It was a lot of self-help groups through church and a ton of journaling. And, you know, when I look back at a lot of those journals, even from when I was with my ex-husband, I I feel really bad for the girl that wrote it at that time. It's like, it was, when you look back, I was like, it was right in front of you. The answers were right there, you know? So it's good to look back to see where you were because you kind of, you feel bad for the person. And I felt bad for for the the me 20 years ago. You know, all those questions I wrote, it it was right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. It's, you know, what do they say? Like hindsight's 2020. Yeah. I think I've said your exact words, you know, that I feel sorry for the little Lisa that tolerated stuff because I didn't, I guess I felt like I deserved it or I didn't know any differently. Mm Mm-hmm. Even abuse became comfortable, you know, the silent treatment became comfortable. So I put up with it. So yeah, I relate for sure. Yeah. One thing that I remember with with Eugene was me being, you know, a woman of faith. He knew that and he, he knew the Bible very well. His stepfather is actually a pastor or a deacon. And so when we we talk about, you know, the Bible, he'd share verses and give me interpretations that are very on point. You know, so another reason to, you know, like be like, wow, my my dream guy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He was, like I said, a stalking hunter. He Right, right, right. He slowly studied you. And yeah, he really did. 
Yeah, he really did. And, you know, even the chemistry and the connection felt very sincere and genuine. Um, but like, yeah, but when it, once the money was gone, I mean, he was still consistent. He still, but there were some differences, especially when I started to ask about, you know, a lot of questions. And then when I asked for the money back, everything had changed a bit. And I, I really did believe he donated it because I have multiple messages of him saying that it's done being donated, you know, like, like, of course, I'm going to donate. And, you know, I want to build water wells in Africa one day. And I wish you guys could see some of the messages, <laughs> mm. you know, because he's very good. Um, and that's the part that's scary. It's like when you don't see it coming. That's right. You know? So, you know, we were just talking about the love bombing in the beginning of the relationship. And I think you're kind of already helping me get to the devalue stage that generally is in a narcissistic relationship. But as we've mentioned, Eugene is very different from the mm -hmm. typical narcissist, because like you said, his end game was the money. Right. It wasn't mm -hmm. so much in a narcissistic relationship for the sake of him getting his supply off you from a relationship. In the sense of Eugene, would you say the devaluing happened after he got his end goal of the money? Yeah, there was a bit of a change in our dynamic. I just think things get messy when there's business and like the personal relationship involved. It just changes the dynamic. I think even like when it comes to like even loaning money to like family or like a friend, it's and there was this book that I read and it talks about it. Oh gosh, I forgot the name of the book, but he talks a lot about finances where even if you were to loan money to a friend, you almost become their master because they owe you, <laughs> you know? And that's how I saw it. Like you, you do owe me this money, even though you're my boyfriend, you know? Nice. And I don't know if I would talk about the devaluing with him exactly because there wasn't a lot of the abusive tendencies even emotionally that I experienced with him like I did with my ex-husband. So the situation is very different. And so I that's why I don't I don't know if you guys want to incorporate my ex-husband, but there was a lot of that with my ex-husband. Maybe we could talk about that in another episode. If you yeah, because I, I just yeah. Yeah. Because I don't want to mix yeah. it and make it confusing. Yeah. Like Lisa said, you were kind of pre-wired from that first marriage and mm -hmm. you know went into this with like an idealized mindset? Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was pretty healed from my marriage. I got the help. I, I even felt like my mindset was different with how I even just like looked at the world. And I thought I had this knowledge and I thought I was good. Honestly, I thought I was presented with someone that could potentially be a lifelong partner. Cause I was honestly okay with even just being by myself. Cause I was so happy thought I met a partner that could add to that, but it was all a con, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's sad because I, I, I thought I did everything right only to be just have this happen. And it's just, I think the worst situation, like more than worse than my ex-husband, because I, I just remember thinking this is how kids feel when they get groomed and they get molested. You know, the, the grooming part is what's scary. Because they're taking such advantage. My ex-husband didn't take advantage of me in this way. You know, I mean, he was a narcissist, but but to be, uh, I, I, I never felt suicidal with my ex-husband. It never got to that place, but I did with Eugene. Mm -hmm. So the experience is very different. I never thought that I could reach a low like, like this because I, I work so hard to think healthier. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but, and again, is that a low? And then, you know, I went and got help and, and that's when I realized, oh, your voice is so important because I feel like people that get in that mindset of suicide or ideation, when you, when you don't talk, the more likely I think you would do it, attempt it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And I, once I started talking and got help, uh, I started to not only like feel better, but then I realized like people that do feel that way, they need to have the courage or learn the courage to to have a voice and, and talk about feeling that way because even that just helped. Some women, you know, that I've met that have been in really bad abusive relationships that have gone in that headspace, but I just never have until now. And that's why I'm trying to talk about it because I don't ever want someone to feel that way. It's a scary place because it's the internal struggle is, is very real because they don't want it. and But then there's also something appealing about it. Mm. It's been a tough road for you, but I'm so, yeah. glad you're, I'm so glad you're sharing it. Yeah. And it's not out of vengeance, but it's like, if you know, someone's being harmed and you know that this is what they do, like, why won't people say anything? And I get it. Like, I think we talked about it. Like there is like, you know, the shame and the guilt. And that's why we had the Me Too movement, right? Mm-hmm. Where hundreds of women stayed quiet because of fear and shame. Mm-hmm. And then when one person talked, it gave others like the chance to just have a voice and feel validated. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So with Eugene, the discard part of the relationship cycle, what did that look like in y'all? Oh, that was, that was pretty clear. I mean, I was, you know, once I called him out on everything, I mean, he literally just threw everything away in the trash. Like it was nothing and just running off. Mm Mm-hmm. That must have felt so strange because you had this relationship you believed with him and that he could discard it so easily. Yeah. And that's when I realized like, okay, well, he's, he's a narcissist. He's a swindler. He's, you know, he's a scam artist. He's a con. Everything was fake, Mm -hmm. you know, because we, you know, we had broken up a long time ago after the money and then we kept things very friendly and very casual. We tried to just continue a friendship. And I trusted him even as a friend. But yeah, when I brought all this up, it was him just trying to cover up his lies even more. No accountability, zero accountability, Mm. just all excuses. And then just literally disappeared. I don't know where he went. Cause like I said, I tried to have him serve last week and he just got up and left, you know, to move your family over 10 grand, like just get served and don't show up to court. But it's like, it just seems like a lot of trouble, but he's probably running away from more than that. Wow. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the last stage is the hoovering. And it doesn't sound like there was much of that on his part trying to hoover you back. No, uh, no. When we broke up, there was where he was trying to get back together. But that's when I trusted the voice that time. And I said, no, I can't let it happen. Like the voice was pretty strong, you know, and I had an experience with it even not with my ex-husband, but it was somebody that I dated after my ex-husband where I you know, I, I honestly had these divine signs and I think about it still um, because there's no way that it was a coincidence, but I, I was involved in another relationship after my ex-husband and, you know, we could talk about this in the next part because it was very, it, it was a repeat of my ex-husband with him. There was so much doubt Very, you know, like my gut just, you know, just don't. And I kept trying to fight with my gut and I remember praying about it and I, said, you know, I remember watching a sermon and the the pastor had said, you know, all you have to do is ask God, you know, he'll answer you. And I remember demanding an answer from him. 
And after I said that prayer, the following day, Jeremiah 29, 11 came up. I didn't think anything. I just thought it was a great verse that we hear. A week later, you know, I go to see my uh, therapist from church and she will give me assignments to take home. So I open up my assignment to see what verse she, you know, she wanted me to study. And guess what it was? Jeremiah 29, 11. I still, I didn't think anything. I was like, okay, you know, it's a common verse, you know, I was being stubborn. So that same week, I got a call from my cousin. Her husband is a pastor and they prayed together every morning. And she texts me the verse and I was like, what the hell? Like she never, ever sends me Bible verses ever. And so I call her and I asked her, I was like, why did you send me this? You've never, ever sent me Bible verses. She was like, we were praying this morning. Something urged us to send you this. And still I'm stubborn. And I was just thinking, oh, it's a coincidence. Then finally, I got a call from my other cousin who was at church the following Sunday, and he sent it to me. And he said it was the same reason. I called him. I was like, why did you send me this? He's like, it was the message at church today, and and something told me to send it to you. So after that, that's when I was like, okay, God's definitely answering me. I'm not going to continue with this relationship. And I cut it off. You know, and it hurt me because I wanted it to continue, but I'm glad it didn't. Because again, looking back at it, it would have been a nightmare. And I saw he was definitely a narcissist. He definitely Mm -hmm. tried to isolate me from my friends, from my male friends. He wanted me to do everything he wanted. There was so much control, but when you're in it, you don't see it. So if it wasn't for that prayer and those verses, and, you know, like I said, like the divine experience I had, I probably would have continued. So again, with Eugene, I prayed the same thing and the verses came up and that's when I ended it and we kept things friendly, but now I can see, you know, so in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, okay, I need to understand this voice. I need to really listen to God and and discern it. But yeah, so that's kind of like my miracle story when I hear his voice. <laughs> that is a miracle story. Wow. Yeah. You know, cause what are the chances, you know, for, t- and, you know, and, and he knows I'm stubborn. It's like, he's trying to tell me, but then again, we have that choice. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't have to listen, but I did this time. Yeah. Well, it's a great verse. And I know some of our, our listeners may not be in the word, but in case anybody's curious, I would love to read it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's good for anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what made you want to stay friends with Eugene? You know, I knew the relationship had to be cut off because, you know, I started to see those verses again. But I did believe that our connection and the chemistry, I I thought it was real. So I wanted to try to maintain a friendship. And we had to still talk because of the money. And that's what it was. I mean, and again, like he tried to get back together. You know, he said he wanted to make it work. And he was really trying for a few months where I saw, okay, like I need to make sure that he he understands that I don't want to get back together, that I even told him I was in another relationship, which he like respected after that. But yeah, everything just boiled down to the money. And now I, I don't know, ever since I found out what happened to it, I know that he's not a friend. He was never, nothing was sincere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. None of so it was real. You were just trying to maintain a friendliness, I guess, so to speak, yeah. so that he... Mm-hmm. Yeah. In hopes to get some of the money back. Um, I mean, the, the intention wasn't that. Like, I was hoping we could just be cordial and friends and nothing romantic. 
I mean, we, we're keeping things a bit casual, but um, as far as like anything serious, that was done. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, he scammed you out of $10,000. So what allowed you to kind of keep that door open? No, this was before I found out that it was a scam, that we had remained friends. Because oh. I didn't find out that it was a scam until November 2022. And him and I stayed friends from March 2022 up until November. Oh. I'm not going to stay friends with a scammer. I didn't find out about the money until November 2022 when I asked about asked for receipts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if you stayed friends with the scammer. I'm not totally, I'm just more oh, yeah. curious as what, what <laughs> oh, was no. your self-talk during that time? Oh, yeah. you know, like trying to stay friends to kind of keep it light to hope to get your money back. You know, I could totally see that angle. Oh, no. I mean, you know, when I realized everything was a lie next, it was all about business where I even tried negotiating with him where I was like, look, you want to set up a payment plan. But after that, like the friendship was gone. Everything mm -hmm. was about business after that. And and then the last message from him is like, you'll get your money back after taxes. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's after taxes and he's not at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly, you know, it is what it is. It's a scam. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because this group that I, I talked to you guys about um, that, that helped kind of warn other women, there's a girl on there that actually has been seeing him a while now. And when my friend put my story up there, or that he's victimized women financially, she actually kind of stuck up for him. But in a lot of ways, I'm not surprised because I think a lot of women have been in that position where we choose not to believe it, or we blind ourselves on purpose. So and it made me feel bad for her because I thought, because she's also a single mom. And I thought, okay, I, I hope she researches this and reaches out to me or the other women, but she might be like on heaven with him right now. You know? mm. So we're going to close out today's episode and we will pick back up with Victoria next time where we will go through the red flags of scammers, con artists, and swindlers and give us even more insight and information so that we can all learn and hopefully avoid these types of people that could fall in our path. We thank you all for joining us today and we look forward to next time on Here's your red flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror. Here's your red flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you would give us a five-star rating. Thanks, y'all. Butterfly Woke.